and thank you for listening. I'm Jay Lemons. Welcome to Leaders on Leadership, brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. The purpose of our podcast is to share the stories of the people and forces that have shaped leaders in higher education and to learn more about their thoughts on leadership in the academy. Delighted to be joined today by Dr. Joe Allen. Joe is the president of Meredith College in North Carolina, one of the largest private colleges for women in the US. She's been in her role a full decade now and is the first Meredith College alumna to serve in that post. Previously, she had served in administrative roles and positions at Widener University, East Carolina, and at North Carolina State. Joe's made numerous contributions to the advancement of higher education serving as a commissioner and site reviewer for the Middle State Commission on Higher Education, and as a board member and site reviewer for SACS, the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges. She's a past board chair of the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities, NICU, and has served in board leadership roles for the North Carolina Independent Colleges and Universities, as well as several other organizations. Joe, it really is hard for me to imagine and believe that it's well more than 20 years ago we met during your ACE fellowship that brought you to UVA and to work with John Castine during the course of that year. And you were good enough to have made your way all the way down to Wise, Virginia, to the University of Virginia's College at Wise. Um, uh, and, and I just have loved the chance for our circles to be intertwined back and forth over time you know, beginning in Charlottesville, but also during um, your years of work and partnership with Jim Harris, and, you know, more recently in the work that we shared in the search that led to Barbara Mystic um, being the successor to David Warren at NICU. I'm grateful for your friendship and your kindness and, and your support um, for all of these uh, years, Joe. Thank Welcome. you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I share your... Uh your surprise at, at how long it's been, uh, but also share your enthusiasm for our friendship and longevity. So thank you. Thank you. Well, let's jump right into it. One of our goals for the program is really to ask leaders to reflect and to think about your own pathway to leadership with a hope that others might learn and frankly be inspired. Joe, I'd love for you to share your story in whatever way you'd want with our listeners and talk about some of the people, events, or opportunities that forged the person and leader you have become in this journey um, and as your journey in higher ed unfolded. Okay. Well, it, it's, um, I, I always start with saying, you know, since childhood, I have always wanted to be a college president said no one ever. <laughs> Nobody goes up thinking, I'm going to be a college president. Um, and sure enough, there's somebody listening who's thinking, well, actually I did. Okay. Um, but it's not one of those things we really think about in terms of a career, especially as children. And, and as we mature, it's not even something we really think about when we go to college. Uh, it's not like there is a major for college administration or college uh, presidencies uh, in prep. So we pick up our lessons about leadership all along the way. And thanks to a number of, of wonderful mentors and friends I've had along the way, uh, including you, Jay, um, I would say that it, it's, it's, um, it's been quite a privilege to forge a different kind of pathway for myself. 
Uh, I do say that while most people think of the traditional pathway to the presidency as beginning as a faculty member and working into department head, dean, provost, and president, um, that is more and more rarely the case. And I'm a great example of that. Um, while I was a faculty member and a tenured faculty member going through the ranks, um, I was never a department head or a department chair and I was never a dean. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you briefly what my little unusual journey was there. Um, after my first year as an assistant professor at East Carolina University, I was uh, all of 28 years old. And uh, the chair of the department asked me to uh, take over the University Writing Center for one year uh, in an interim role uh, to be a good soldier to the department and, and the university. Um, I was advised by several good friends and mentors not to do it. Uh, they were very concerned that uh, I could derail my tenure uh, approach. And, uh, and after just one year under my belt, uh, the feeling was really I hadn't I hadn't settled enough into the faculty life to understand what tenure was really all about to get my research and publication agenda uh, laid out and rolling and so forth. Um, nonetheless, I um, decided that I wanted this one year opportunity to, uh, to see what administrative work was like. Um, again, I will say as, as, as many of your listeners, I'm sure will agree as well, uh, naivete can play a great role in, in opportunities and achievements. Um, we always fear the downside, the risky side of that naivete, but sometimes it plays out for us. And if I had a few years later had the wisdom, uh, if I had been the wisdom that I had a few years later, I would have understood that uh, banking my early career on the um, professionalism of graduate students was probably not a wise risk to take um, because they were so much into their studies and their research and their work and classes that their time as a tutor in the writing center took third, fourth, fifth precedent. So I was very fortunate. I had great graduate students at East Carolina. They were very committed to this work, but I did realize later, wow, that could have, that could have gone really, really badly. And um, I'm just fortunate that it didn't. But I did learn a lot in that role as well. One was that I liked special projects. Um, so I never really wanted to be a department head or, um, or a dean and, and be locked into what seemed to me at the time, a particular area. I learned later that there's a lot more flexibility there than I, than I thought, but I loved working on special projects and um, doing things like um, we helped to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the North Carolina Museum of Art um, and, and getting uh, Phi Kappa Phi at, at, um, at East Carolina and other things. And then going on to the ACE Fellowship that you mentioned and having the, the great pleasure to work with John Castine, a longtime friend and mentor. Um, and I, I recall that the, the year that I was there, um, I think UVA had started with a, a goal of 500 million for a capital campaign. They had just upped it to 750 when I got there and within another month or two had upped it again to a billion dollars. And uh, as you can imagine for this young woman from Eastern North Carolina, um, that, was, that was quite a heady figure. And so the opportunity though to watch John at work was really interesting to me in terms of uh, his work with his leadership team, his work in fundraising and his work with the legislatures. Uh, so 
that was an early insight. I think that's really valuable. Um, when I went to Widener University, I worked with Jim Harris, a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal friend and, and mentor as well, who the first week on the job asked me what I wanted to do after my provost position there. Um, and I, all I could think was, I just want to survive it, you know. Um, <laughs> He, uh, he said, well, how about it? Do you want to be a college president? I said, I don't know. I want to watch you and see what the life is really like. And if I can, you know, if I can see myself in that role. And he said, okay, well, if you wanted to be president, where would you want to be president? And I said, that's easy, Meredith College. And to be able to come back to my alma mater has been just truly a blessing. Um, but all along the way, I say I, I had great mentors. I have great experiences and one of the best and and if your listeners have an opportunity uh in their leadership roles to provide this opportunity for others or to take advantage of it um one of the great things that jim did for me was to make sure that i moved beyond the traditional role of a provost and actually started taking on some of those roles that a president would be involved with anything from real estate um to um program acquisition to community involvement and service and work and um, partnerships and relationships with legislators and others. So um, that was that was really quite fortunate uh, for me. As I say, I've been very blessed to have some wonderful uh, friends and along, um, mentors along the way, but those are some of the highlights. Um, and as I took these different paths, um, I guess it, it did finally dawn on me that um, there is there are leadership lessons everywhere we turn. Uh, some of them are painful, um, but some of them are, are quite useful. And um, to learn to start really looking at the lessons learned. What would you have done differently? What if you had done that differently? Um, and asking more reflective questions um, has certainly served me well throughout this journey. Well, um... I've had the pleasure of watching you model being a reflective practitioner. Um, and, and I, you know, Joe, I, I love the point you made about the advantage of naivete, uh, especially early on in one's um, career. I, I too, I think had no idea what I was uh, asked to do and I look back and I know that I made some decisions um, based on, um, you know, a, a decent amount of knowledge, but it was limited. And it was much, much, much more limited with regard to, um, uh, to experience born out of naivete that ended up being incredibly consequential. And um, I might not have made, just as you said, um, with some more experience. And there's, there's something there that probably bears, you know, uh, our teasing out a little bit more. But thank you for, for sharing um, all of that. I think there was uh, a lot of wisdom packed into that. You know, I, I'm really grateful that we've had the chance to serve and support the Meredith community um, I, I'm in, in a number of searches this past year. I want to say thank you for that. Um, and one of the things that it's made me aware of is um, the commitment that the Meredith community has made to doing any racism work. And I 
you know, we live in this incredible era of divisiveness and, and um, we have a world and a union that falls really far short of the ideals expressed um, by our founders. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that work, including sharing, you know, what lessons learned, both through triumph and the challenges that you and your col colleagues are, are experiencing. But I, I really want to raise up and praise the commitment to going beyond um, the embrace of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but thinking about, as Beverly Tatum challenged us all to do, um, uh, we need to actively be engaged um, if we're going to see um, systemic change. Absolutely. I think um, for us, it's, um, I think the approach we've taken is just very um, representative of our community. Um, this is a this is a, a a faculty staff student alumni group that uh, it's not to say there aren't some outliers of course there are but with great passion believe in the mission and the promise of this institution and with great passion uh, believe in the power of change and uh, making a difference and I say this first of all about in the in the broader context of higher education that um, I, I always kind of chuckle, except I find it annoying uh, when people say, "Well, higher education really needs to change." Boy, I mean, we're changing all the time. I can't think of an industry, an enterprise uh, that changes more than higher education does. Uh, we are constantly changing our delivery, our message, our strategies, our recruiting, the faculty, the, the you know, the, the new things we're learning about learning, the new things we're learning about teaching and so on. So, so that's one thing is I, I think that I'm part of a community that recognizes the power of change. When we look at that through the lens of history, we see the change that has been afforded women um, who originally uh, at, at Meredith, the, the goal was always to provide a first rate education for women equal to that that men got. Um, we saw a lot of other women's institutions that were not committed to that first rate quality. Um, and, and most of them did not survive. Um, what we see now is that that commitment has changed over time. And while I think it's very easy to think that our commitment to anti-racism is something new, born out of the last year, uh, out of the, the horrendous uh, murders and, and social challenges and social justice uh, calls to action, uh, the truth is that our faculty and staff were very involved in the civil rights initiative, for instance. Um, it's, it's hard sometimes to sustain that interest when you feel like you've made a difference. But I think, you know, the, the lessons of the last year, we haven't done nearly enough. And so the recommitment to that is really important. I think the other thing that's true of Meredith when I talk about the, the culture here is there's a real sense of coming together and it is faculty, staff, students, it's alumni, it's our board of trustees and all have embraced this work. Um, so it's not a faculty problem, it's not a student problem, it's not a board leadership problem, it's an everybody uh, problem that we have to commit to whatever changes and understandings of reality we have to, to come to. The other thing that I think is really important is that we've designed enough um, maybe not enough, but certainly plenty of initiatives 
for this work to happen from the ground up as well as the top down. And I think people are looking for administrative leadership, but they don't want to be told how to become more inclusive. Yeah. They want the grassroots piece, but they know they need the resources and they need the commitment uh, to make that happen. So um, we, we see this as a as an, uh, bottom down, top up, uh, round the clock, round the round the campus commitment, and it's particularly wonderful to see how people are expressing their interest in this. So, one of the things we've done, we've done multiple kinds of training, for instance, and, and education. Some that takes a historical approach, some takes an emotional approach, uh, some takes a political approach or an economic approach. So, there's an opportunity here for everyone. Um, the other things we are doing is uh, we'll be creating our first diversity, equity, and inclusion officer uh, at Meredith. I think in many ways we felt we were the, um, the, the brand leader for diversity. We were making all the right pushes for women's empowerment and, and equal pay and, you know, gender appreciation and, and things like that. And, um, and then to, to realize quite painfully um, that we haven't done nearly enough to talk about the disparity between how white women um, proceed through the world and how black women and women of color proceed. So that's, that's another commitment that we have. And just seeing how all this plays out is gonna be, um, it is already, it is painful. Uh, we've done a campus climate survey. We have uh, faculty members involved with um, universities understanding uh, slavery um, studying slavery right out of University of Virginia. Uh, we have been recognized as one of seven national hubs for this study through the Council of Independent Colleges. Um, there are all sorts of things going on. Our students are active. We're revising the honor code. Our board will be working on um, renovating the value statements that serve as many of the pillars of our, of our responses and so forth. But what I'm most excited about is actually after getting through this year, and the, the toughest thing about all this work is that it's tough no matter what, it's especially tough during a pandemic when people cannot physically be together, cannot share each other's energy and all of that. And everybody's passion is blocked into, you know, a little, a little showcase. Um, so we're really excited for people to come back and be part of a, a grander conversation about this. But one of the real keys is going to be, we'll be starting uh, the revision of our strategic plan in 21-22. And we have said every single pillar of our strategic plan, we have six pillars. Every pillar will have a diversity, equity, and inclusion goal within. Uh, and all of our administrators are having a diversity, equity, and inclusion goal as part of their personal uh, goals and conversations with their supervisors. Uh, and those are intended to be multi-year. Uh, so it's not just a once and done and maybe it established something, but you know, assessing it, did it make a difference? Does it need to be tweaked? Is it ready to be, is it ready to be better funded? Could we ask uh, a foundation to help us with that? Could we look at other Raleigh colleges uh, and North Carolina colleges to come and join a partnership with us. And we're just seeing multiple opportunities for all of that to come together. And we're quite excited about it. So 
I'm, I'm very, very pleased with, with the work that we're doing. And it's, it's slow, it's plotting, and we know that. But um, just as a bit of evidence about the kind of community we are, we asked people, do you want to take a break for the summer and have these things to reflect on? And they said, no, we want to keep going. So uh, I know summer's typically a quiet time for a lot of colleges, especially um, smaller colleges like Meredith. But I'm, I'm delighted that our folks want to keep going with this. As for the challenges, one is... Uh, the biggest challenge is communication, uh, and it, it presents itself in two ways. One is the language we use, which many of us are not well enough educated yet about using the right words, uh, the right descriptions and language and so forth. So we're learning. Um, but the other, I think, is really the, the, um, the social media impact. Um, it, is, it, is, it is not in our students' Uh, realm of day-to-day -day living that they check their emails from us. And I suspect most of your listeners are having the same issue with their uh, students. And quite honestly, things like Instagram and Twitter are not the best forums for talking about um, the positive work that's going on and the opportunities to participate. So, um, you know, trying to get students, you know, we've got an update on our work on races, anti-racism, please check your email or check the website or something like actually getting people to read what we're doing is, is probably the greatest challenge. Um, furthermore, I'd say just recognizing one size doesn't fit all and the work we're doing and the reason we're trying it at so many levels and in so many, uh, in so many different ways and contexts is we want everybody to find a point of entry that you're comfortable with. And, you know, you don't have to do something big, splashy, dynamic and new Start with your comfort level. What do you learn? What's new to you? What's an aha? What do you want to look at next? How do you want to tie that uh, through the rest of your work here? So that's, that's our work. I really appreciate all of that, Joe. Um, and, and especially um, the reminder that this work has been going on for generations at Meredith and, 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 and in dramatic ways. Um, uh, at Meredith, and that there are ever-expanding boundaries that will make us um, more inclusive and more just and more whole, and that uh, I know, um, I think at an earlier point in my life, I imagined that these were, um, this was work that would have a conclusion. But I think it is ever present and, and we need to remind ourselves that it really is marathon and not a sprint. And so I, 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 I actually uh, empathize and praise the notion that we're, we're gonna stay at this. You use the word plotting um, and yet plotting, we must just keep moving. So uh, keep doing that, um, uh, you and your colleagues. Um, it will be good for Meredith will have profound impacts on, on, on uh, generations of students, just as the work um, uh, of, of our ancestors has um, uh, for where we stand today. So, well, let me, let me um, switch gears a bit. And, and uh, yeah, we're called Leaders on Leadership. I um, love and have come to appreciate um, the word good. Um, and I, um, I, I think it, it, it comes, you know, with that, the rooting um, in the Methodist tradition, but it's also something here at Academic Search and Hasselmo talks about our doing good work. And, and 
I want to ask you what it means in your mind, what makes a good leader? And let me clarify. By good, I don't mean grade B. I mean virtuous, effective, successful. Um, one of the things that I've been toying with over the last couple of years, and in fact, I think you and I had a conversation or two about this, but um, I think when a lot of people think of leadership, they, they see capital L leadership, which means they have to have the title, they have to have the resources, they more than likely have the salary, uh, they certainly have the support staff uh, to do big, audacious things. And, um, and while that's certainly true, and there are some great works out there about that kind of leadership uh, and, and where, um, where great leaders have been most challenged by um, whatever circumstances they may be facing uh, or whatever opportunities they have before them and not to squander those opportunities. Um, I think where a lot of times we miss the boat is we forget about little L leadership. And it's, it's before you get the title, it's before you get the big money, before you get the corner office, before you get the dream project or anything like that, before you get support staff. Um, this is the, the, the means by which you represent yourself. This is the opportunity you speak up for that I want a shot at doing this. It's the reputation you have as being a team player and collaborator, uh, not caring so much who gets the credit, but what the outcome of the project is. Um, it's about caring how other people feel. And when you see that somebody's slipping at work, it's not an excuse to run to the boss and criticize. It's an opportunity to say to your colleague, something seems a little off. Can I help? Can I step in? Can I do something here? Um, and so I, I think about that as it's a form of character building. It's a form of uh, responsibility and accountability building, but it's about both the work and the people. And I think if you, if, when I think about the best leaders I know, they're people that have certainly the intellect and the competence to do big things, but they've built relationships along the way that, um, that build trust, that build confidence, that build um, people wanting them to succeed. They want the project to succeed. They want to be part of it. Um, and I think, you know, embedded in that is the ability for, um, to, to balance confidence with humility. And that is no easy chore. Um, but I do think it's something that if people get to big L leadership and they haven't done the practice of balancing the growth in confidence with uh, taking down a notch or two of humility. Um, they're not as effective a leader as they could be. And uh, so I say every day is, a, is another lesson. Um, I really encourage people to journal, to log, to do whatever, you know, um, suits your style and your timing and all that. But uh, it's a good way to be, as we were talking earlier, a more reflective leader. Because I think after you get the big L leadership job, um, those other things are going to keep um, being part of your repertoire of how you lead. Uh, so you don't get the big title, the big promotion, the presidency, whatever, and forget that I got here because people could count on me. 
because I did my share of the work because I, I took advantage of efficient resources and that I, and I watched out for people. I looked after yeah. uh, their feelings, their abilities, their talents. I tried to encourage them to do new and different things, but I also helped them understand their strengths and, uh, and to build on those. So that's, that sort of leadership for me is that it's sort of a wheel of little L built into the capital L and then keeping the, the little L still in mind. So I, I always think about it sort of like the old Al, Ed Sullivan show. And I'm sure many of your listeners are way too young to know this, but there was a particular person that came out and had this bizarre routine of plate spinning, you know, and he would run from plate to plate trying to keep them all in the air at the same time. And uh, if he could do it, um, it was huge applause. And if he messed up, there were huge groans from the audience. And so the, the one last thing I sort of think about is, People expect us to keep the plate spinning. Um, and even if even if they don't realize they want us to keep the plate spinning, they do. Because they know when the plates stop spinning, that's when things start to fall. And that's when morale suffers. That's when um, everything else starts to, starts to feel uncomfortable and unnerving. So it's a tough job. But, you know, having other people there to spin a couple of those plates for you, makes all the difference in the world, so. Amen, it is a team sport. And I love, I love the invocation of having the right um, mix or balance between confidence and humility, um, powerful. When you're creating a team, what do you look for in others? Mm. Well, you know, certainly beyond confidence and things like that, but I would say even about their own work to be able to, to demonstrate that confidence and humility. Um, I definitely look for a sense of humor. Uh, I have a very strong team. I have a fabulous team that um, very big hearted, but also understand the business of the academy, um, but that have their very own distinctive uh, senses of humor and um, which, which I'm always grateful for. Um, I think that we are at uh, a really good in a really good way, able to play devil's advocate with each other. Um, I think we, we started out doing that very tentatively with um, sort of, well, I know you want us to play devil's advocate sometimes, so I'm going to take a stab at it. And now it's more like, well, I disagree. Here's my reasoning. And we don't have to do all the nice trot around anymore, but that's because we've been together for, for quite some time now. But um, I think a, a team that uh, I have one team member, for instance, that I call my stealth bomber. Um, she can actually look at any spreadsheet and within two seconds, see what's wrong with it. There's a cell that's got a zero there that can't possibly be a zero. She's, I mean, she's got that kind of an eye. Uh, I've got uh, another, um, another person that can uh, do public math <laughs> to the point that uh, embarrasses us all. Um, Another that's really great at storytelling and keeping us humored, but also through those stories, reminding us of some traditions and some special aspects of Meredith and, um, and, some, and some pitfalls where, where prior leaders have made some, some missteps and that we don't want to make again, so. Yeah, excellent. Uh, what's your advice for those who aspire to leadership? I would say uh, it, it's a it's a big yes no continuum. Um, 
first of all, know what you want out of it, but know what it does, what it means for other people. Uh, I remember when I, when I was a little girl, I always knew I wanted to do something important. Um, but I wanted to do something important for me. Yeah. And again, when we're talking about that maturity and growth, it, it took my growing up some to realize what I really wanted was to do something important for other people, okay, that I could be proud of. So that's where it comes back to me. And I say that about projects or anything else. As I said, when I took over the University Writing Center, I was advised not to do it and um, decided on my own that it was something I wanted to do. So there's that for one thing, the ability to say, what do I, what do I get out of this? How does this serve the rest of the university outside of the English department, things like that. There was also the matter though of, I get to, to be in a leadership role, which I had never been. I get to manage a budget. I get to manage a staff. I get to, um, to work across the campus. And those were things that appealed to me very much. Um, I think for other people, if these are things that don't appeal to you, you need to look for a different kind of leadership role. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons I'm glad I didn't do the department head dean role. Um, I had more opportunities to be out and about across the campus uh, and to see students from, from all areas. Um, so figure out what that is. Learn to say no when it's not the right thing for you. I will tell you. My, my dear friend, Jim Harris, would come to me every now and then with uh, so-and-so has a uh, presidency open. Do you, don't you think you want that? Don't you want me to nominate you for it? And I'd say, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. And he would say, oh, what? I think you'd be really good. I said, I, I may be, but I'm not interested in it. Um, so I'll, I'll always remember the day that he came in and uh, asked me if I had seen that the president at Meredith was retiring. And I said, yes, I, I have. And he looked at me and he closed the door and he said, Joe, it's time. And I said, yeah, it's time. And we just felt like this was what I'd been preparing for, what I was ready for, to be able to come home to my beloved alma mater with these fantastic people uh, that, I mean, that could be anywhere uh, in the country, anywhere in the world, but they choose to be at Meredith. That to me was, was the best evidence that I had, not only made the right decisions, but but had taken some risks along the way. Um, and I, I encourage others to do that. Don't, don't feel that you have to go in a particular trajectory towards those capital L leadership roles. Do some other things and, and take some risks and you'll be surprised who you get to meet along the way and uh, the impact that they'll have on you and vice versa. What, what an incredible um, stroke of good fortune and blessing that the stars aligned for you. Absolutely. Uh, I, you know, I, I, the rarity of, of building um, through your career and experiences towards that which you had some clarity about um, uh, uh, much earlier on is, is really extraordinary and really unusual. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's very special. Um, and um, and no doubt, um, a part of, of what sustains you now as, uh, as a, uh, the, the, the strength of the vocational call, the, the clarity around that call. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, what, what do you think the biggest challenges facing leaders are today? And, um, and, I, and you know, as well, are there 
different skills um, uh, that are required to lead in the future that we uh, have in a post-pandemic world and, and into the future. Well, I certainly think that, you know, the recovery is, is on top of everybody's list of, of priorities and, uh, and what that's going to mean for us, because I don't think we really know. Um, I think being flexible enough to, uh, to take whatever uh, gets thrown at us is, is part of the challenge. Why, and that's why it's so important to have a good team, um, because you can't, you can't foresee it all. You can't respond to it all. Um, I remind people that, you know, being a college president is like running a, a city. I've got transportation. I've got entertainment. I've got you know, security, I've got uh, utilities and, and all of that, hotels, restaurants. Uh, and that's all before you get to the business of the college as, you know, the library, the labs, the classrooms and, and all of that. So I think, you know, certainly um, deferred maintenance on those things is important. The regulatory climate in which we live and is always changing uh, brings a lot of, of new um, uh, problems to the forefront. Sometimes a solution or two creeps through there, but it's pretty rare. Um, but in terms of the, um, I think one of the, the real challenges, as I mentioned earlier, is social media. Uh, the, the opportunities for anonymous postings um, where uh, allegations of, of either wrongdoing or wrongheadedness can't really be addressed, uh, even when it's demonstrably false. Uh, you can't be defensive about things. That's a problem. Um, I think the other thing, though, is as, as life is faster, social media is more intrusive. Technology is more intrusive. Um, we worry about uh, so many aspects of our, our students' well-being, our faculty and staff's well-being, uh, the economy, um, family welfare, and all of that. Uh, it, it's really also important that um, people acknowledge what being on call 24 seven actually means. And I think there are a lot of people that very flippantly throw that out um, and, and feel that they are on call 24 um, seven. It's, it is different when you're the one who gets a call about um, a death on campus or um, a utility outage or a, a flooded residence hall or, uh, a donor deal that just fell through in the middle of a construction project or something like that. So, uh, you know, it's balancing all that as well that I think makes makes these jobs really hard. Um, and I think it takes a toll on a lot of people in, in ways they would never have expected. But uh, I think again, best I can figure, um, having, having built that, that character and competence and, um, creativity and eagerness to work with the team and not to be a lone wolf, uh, I think is absolutely key to the being able to do the job uh, and do it through tough times. No question. Yeah. Uh, keeping those plates spinning. There you go. Uh, because there's almost always one that is on its way to the ground. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you're right. My listeners have heard me say this, but I don't think it can be repeated enough. Leadership is not a, uh, uh, this is Rosabeth Moth Cantor. This is not Lemons, but I channel it. Um, uh, leadership is not um, a solo act. It's, it's a team sport. And it almost always happens, you know, in duets or trios or 
quartets or small ensembles is that that's the only way to lead. Absolutely. Uh, let's move into what I call a lightning round. Okay. So, uh, you know, you can answer whatever length you want, but uh, um, um, we try and pick up the pace just a hair here. Who, who most influenced you? Um, certainly a lot of my faculty here at Meredith when I was a student. Um, so I, I would start by crediting them. Uh, John Castine, surely at Virginia, was the closest I'd ever been to a president. Um, and then Jim Harris, working with him for seven years as just a phenomenal leader. So those would be my, my top choices, probably right off the top of my head. Excellent. Excellent. What book has most influenced you? Uh, this is an interesting one. Um, probably Exit the Rainmaker. Ah, ha, ha. Jonathan Coleman. Jonathan Coleman. Yes, yes. So um, it was, it's a book for your readers who don't, um, listeners who don't know it. It's, it's a book about a college president who one day walks into his office, puts his keys down, puts a note on, uh, on his desk to his, um, one of his vice presidents and just says, exit the rainmaker. And he disappears for years. And there are questions about whether he's alive or not and what happened to him. But um, it's an interesting read. It, it's a, uh, it's a humbling read, I think, and and a bit of a cautionary tale. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful book. I, I encourage um, uh, people to to look uh, for it. Um, it it's an old book. You will probably have to get it through a used bookstore or Amazon or something like that. But well, anyway. completely out of print at this point. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite or fondest memory of your undergraduate experiences at Meredith? Um. Honestly, I'd have to say it was everything Meredith. I, I love this place. I love my experience here. It was not all 100% great, but there was a really special feeling among uh, the students, even those that were in different cliques and groups and all that. We still got along well. And so I think that was great. I think um, um, a, a lot of our traditions which are really significant at Meredith and most women's colleges, men's colleges too, I think have really significant traditions that were really special feeling like you, you understood the, um, the tradition. Uh, that Is makes it a special, a, a favorite tradition that you'd raise up? Yeah, um, very interestingly, in 1924, there was a big flu epidemic um, and the students had to be quarantined and all of that. The faculty and staff came together and put on a production of Alice in Wonderland for the students. And we have done that every four years since. And um, it's, it's a surprise. The students don't get to know who's playing what character or anything like that. Um, we do it for two nights and it's great fun. Uh, and in 2024, we will be doing it for the 100th year. And I don't know of any other institution that does something like that, a, a, a performance by the faculty and staff for, for the students. But we do some teasers leading up to it as well. So um, we'll have faculty just pop up in the cafeteria and do a flash mob uh, dance scene. And it, it's, it's absolutely silly and ridiculous. And we take all kinds of liberties with uh, the story to bring in current references and jokes. And, um, but it's absolutely delightful. Students love it. The faculty and staff love it. We get to see each other from across campus at, 
you know, maybe new new faces we didn't know before. And um, it, it's just it's just a hoot. So anyway, that's, that's, that's wonderful. That's yeah. how really special. So 2024, was there a pandemic version of it um, that took place in 2020 um, uh, that you had to do, you know, virtually or something? Well, interestingly, because we do it the last week in January. So we just got it done. Ah. And then we started hearing, of course, about the pandemic right right as that um, happened. But we, were, we didn't even really hear about it yet, you know. So it was a little later that we knew that. But we also, thank goodness we got to do Alice because it's really those relationships and friendships and all of that that being virtual has really sustained us in a lot of ways. So... Uh, we're still able to work together because we're still sort of riding that Alice high. So um, all fun. Uh, fabulous. I love I love hearing about these traditions because ritual and tradition are truly essential elements that I think do help um, uh, define the special space and culture that higher education has. It, it is rooted in those sorts of experiences. Joe, if you hadn't worked in higher education, if you hadn't found your way into being at first a college professor and then a, a very young administrator who grew into a president, what, where else might you have worked? Um, I'm sure my family would say an attorney because I like to argue with people, but um, <laughs> actually, I, actually, I'd want to be a personal shopper. So, yeah. Very and, good. And of course it makes sense. I like spending other people's money. <laughs> now, a lot of it's about, you know, figuring out what is it somebody wants that they can't even see that they want. And I think that sort of defines higher education in a lot of ways. We have so many students that come in that they're pretty sure they know what they want. And some of them have no clue what they want. And there's only a very small percentage that comes in that actually does know what they want, actually will follow that major and career path and, you know, retire is that. Um, but most of our students are going to go through a lot of changes. And sometimes it helps to say, hey, if you ever considered green, green would be a great looking tie on you or, you know, your colors of your eyes would really bring out this, uh, you know, this blue jacket would work well. So that being a personal shopper and then knowing what the little things are to accessorize, whether it's study abroad or uh, research projects or an opportunity to work in a faculty lab. Uh, and, and then, you know, how you live your life, how much money do you need to make? How much are you going to be involved in volunteering and all that? It's just, it just seems to be a very nice metaphor. Um, but I, I, like, I like the idea of personal shopping. I love it. I love it. Well, Joe, one of our traditions here on Leaders on Leadership is we like to close by inviting our friends like you to share with our listeners, those distinctive qualities that make up the, the organizational DNA at Meredith um, and, and uh, why it has had such a call on your heart since you were a very young person. Well, for, for me, it, it's, it's something I, I, I knew but didn't get to articulate and really work on until I got back here. Uh, and that was the notion that what Meredith does is make strong women stronger. And um, I, I love that we have embraced the work of Clifton and Gallup StrengthsFinder work. Uh, oh, wow. We've used that to build a four-part plan. Each student builds their own plan. 
with the help and support of mentors and faculty and advisors, where she takes her top five strengths and applies them in the areas of academic planning, uh, experiential learning planning, financial planning, and career planning. So um, each of our strengths gives us a way to look a little differently at our individuality. And I think that's um, that sort of comes back full circle to me about what I liked about Meredith is uh, it felt very personal. It felt very individualized. Um, I will always remember sitting in my freshman comp uh, faculty member's office during my first semester at Meredith and not really knowing what I was going to do for a major or anything else. And her saying to me, Joe, you have a real flair for writing. And I can hear her say that. I can hear those words right now. And um, I, I will say, you know, that's the kind of aha that I said, I didn't know I had a flair for much of anything to tell you the truth. But, you know, then then it made me explore that. What would that mean? And so uh, becoming a stronger and stronger writer over time uh, led me to understand that all of our students become stronger and stronger in something. And it's very helpful when you know from the get-go what your strengths are, you've got a real head start on figuring out, well, how do I use that in combination with my passion for, for educating children or um, developing new software code or uh, a new banking um, procedure or something like that. So that's, that's, our, that's my connection there. I love it. I love it. President Joe Allen from Meredith College, thank you for joining us on Leaders on Leadership. We're grateful to have you and to have the benefit of your sharing your journey and your insights and wisdom about leadership with, uh, with all of us. Um, I, I, final word from you would be welcome, Joe. Well, I just thank you, Jay. I think this is great work. Um, we have really appreciated our work with Academic Search. I think uh, they've done a great job in getting to know us and our DNA and how we differ from other institutions. So I see that that personalization and, and all of that in the work that you do as well and did so very well as a president uh, at Susquehanna and WISE and then uh, brought to Academic Search. So you have a great team as well. And I um, hope everybody uh, finds some kernel of, of joy and sustenance in the work that they do every single day. Amen. Another secret from Gallup. Um, you know, if we can all find joy and be affirmed in that joy, um, we will be sustained. So listeners, we welcome your suggestions and thoughts for leaders we should feature in upcoming segments. You can send those to leadershippodcast at academicsearch.org. You can find our podcast on Academic Search on our website or anywhere else you find your podcasts. Leaders on Leadership is brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. Together, our mission is to support colleges and universities during times of transition and through leadership development activities that serve current and future generations of leaders in the academy. Again, it's been a special joy to host Joe Allen on our show today. Thanks again, Joe, for joining us. Thank you, Jay.